Howdy, everyone. Welcome to the Badlands Podcast with your host, me, Badman Randy. This is the first celebrity guest appearance on the Badlands. Whoa! I was not nervous at all. Just kidding. Our inaugural guest today is a spectacular, stupendous, superstar of an inspiration, Chris Darwall. Chris graduated from Harvard Business School, then worked at and eventually made it to partner for the prestigious American management consulting firm, McKinsey & Company, before starting and co-founding a couple of tech businesses, before becoming executive director of Harvard Business School's first research center. She now spends her time helping and volunteering at programs that aid in young people's professional development and career readiness and employment opportunities, such as the one that I was at. You know her, you love her, put your hands together in your house, car, or apartment for the fabulous Chris Darwall. Let's start with this. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great, Alex. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. I was curious about your, your experience at Harvard, how that went, and because we all hear about Harvard being such a prestigious school, I'd like to hear your take on it from, from someone who went. Well, I will say that Harvard as an undergraduate place to go to school is probably very different from Harvard Business School, which is where okay. I went. I had a brother who went to Harvard undergrad. And um, he said, interestingly, that it was pretty easy that once you got in, uh, you didn't have to work that hard to get good grades. So I thought that was interesting. Whereas at Harvard Business School, once you get in, you have to work your butt off. So it's a really difficult environment. And the reason it is that way is that they have a class of uh, 900 people. It's divided into 10 what they call sections. And you stay with that group of 90 people every day, Monday through Friday, all day, your first year. The second year, you see all kinds of people in your classes. So you really get to know 90 people very well, which is not that dissimilar from your experience with year up. So um, it's, it's not someone you just pass in the hall. It's someone you really know. Secondly, the emphasis of Harvard Business School is on speaking and persuading others. So at most business schools, that is not the case. You are going to lectures, you're reading books, and you then take tests. And if you do well on the test, you're going to do really well in the school and get honors and so forth. At Harvard Business School, it's not that way. You can do really well on tests. You can get 100% on your tests and still not make good grades. And the reason for that is if you're not sharing your opinions and your knowledge and your experience with others, um, then that's considered not a good thing. And in the same way that Europe stresses speaking, speaking up, sharing your ideas, it's the same way at Harvard Business School. So when you first go there, uh, most people are very intimidated because it's these classrooms are set up like a big bowl. And so you're looking across and up and down at all the other students. And the professor rarely, well, the professors never give lectures and they rarely even state their opinions. What they are there to do is to be an orchestra leader. So they always call on someone every day to start the case, it's called. And that would be a 30 to 50 page document that you will have read the night before about a business and about a problem they have. Usually you cannot find what the business did. Sometimes the business hasn't even made a decision yet. 
You have to read this. It's maybe 30 pages of writing and then many, many exhibits with numbers. You have to analyze it. And to begin, each professor starts by saying, for example, Alex. Actually, he would say, Mr. Lira. Mr. Lira, would you begin the case? And your job as the person who's starting is to spend about 10 minutes, just you, laying it all out. You describe the problem, you analyze it, you give certain numbers and analyses that you've done, and the professor is up there madly writing on the blackboard. And then, <laughs> towards the end of your speaking, you say, so, if I was the CEO, this is what I would do, and you explain your decision. Once you've finished, all the other 89 people raise their hands and start wanting to talk. And most of them are not saying, I agree with Mr. Lira. <laughs> They're mostly saying, well, Alex might have made one or two good points, but I really disagree. And then they start describing um, what, I'm gonna get rid of this fun. They start describing what they would do and why they would do it and giving their own analyses. So this goes on for 90 minutes. Each class is 90 minutes long and there are three classes a day. And every day, every evening, you have to read three more of these um, cases and prepare and get ready for the next morning, not knowing if you're gonna be the one called on to start the case. Right. And if you're called on and you don't have anything to say, it's always pretty obvious. <laughs> and uh, so it's very intimidating, especially if you're someone not already steeped in um, business you know, lexicon, you don't know business terms. So for someone like me who really had not come from business, um, I really had a, a steep startup curve learning, learning those terms and learning that I couldn't get by on just studying really hard and doing well on a test. But what it ends up doing is making you skilled at summarizing difficult amounts of data. Making it concise almost. Being concise and also, you know, this is what the real world is like. No one hands you, you know, well-written documents with, oh, here's all the data for us to decide what to do in our business. No, as a CEO or a manager or even someone lower down in the organization, it's messy. You're having to decide what data you look at and decide how you analyze it and then make mm -hmm. decisions. And the focus is really on decisions. A lot of people have difficulty. They can analyze forever and they love it, but they have a hard time saying, now I'm going to decide. Now I'm going to do that. And this is why. And then sticking to their guns. And that's, of course, what a good CEO or manager does is learn how to make those decisions. So the whole point of the school is teaching you how to speak, how to persuade others, and how to make decisions in a short amount of time when it's messy and you don't know the obvious answer. And just the whole uh, methodology frustrated lots of people because a in the beginning, a lot of people would say at the end of class, well, professor, what do you think? What do you think the company should have done? And the professor would not answer the question because as they would say, it was irrelevant. What's relevant is how you analyze it and what you would do and not what they think. And often then people would come, the actual CEO, and they would talk about it. Well, here's how we thought about it. Here's what we did. Here's what, how we saw it. Um, but sometimes they came and they hadn't yet decided and they were interested in what all the students would be suggesting because it was another data point for them. 
So it was very difficult, very hard. I didn't get much sleep the first year, but it was the most fun educational environment I was ever in. And I certainly learned more there than anywhere else in my Absolutely. life. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And as someone who has been a, a, in business management for so long, I'm sure it's, there's never really a right or wrong answer. You just kind of have to go with the data and really a gut feeling at the, at the end of the day, no? It's so true. And even after the fact, you never know, well, if I had taken this other road, what would have happened? You can't know. <laughs> so that's part of it too. So yeah, it, it is a lesson to be learned over and over and over again. And um, I think about it all the time, you know, every day, if I'm making a decision, it's it was a great place to learn how to make decisions. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Um, I want to talk to you about maybe your, your time at McKinsey and company and becoming partner and maybe the struggle or, or the road to reaching partner. Cause I know that's a very uh, prestigious position. If I'm, if I'm certain, if I'm correct. <laughs> it is. Um, well, that's a place that I, I loved and hated at the same time. <laughs> The job itself is fascinating if you are someone like me, because every couple months you're working on a new project, a new project for a new company. Um, sometimes your projects are longer, sometimes shorter, but three to four months would be like an average. Um, you also can work in many different industries. So generally, if you're going into business, you're going into a company and you have a boss and you're in an industry. But in management consulting, you work, can work in many industries on many different problems. And when you're just starting out, so you're a new, what they call associate, you actually have many bosses. So on every project, you have a manager and you see the partners less, less often, but um, McKinsey is a very non-hierarchical place. So every time you're getting ready for a meeting with the client, the partners in the room, the manager, yourself, any other associates, and just like at uh, Harvard Business School, you're all really encouraged to say what you think because you want to get to the best answer for the client. So you really can't hold back. But as you start out at that low level, your basic job is analysis. So you have numbers, numbers, numbers. You're always cranking the numbers and trying to come up with insights by looking at those numbers. So your manager might say, okay, I want you to analyze uh, whether green beans or tomatoes are more profitable for Del Monte. And then you start, you know, cranking all those numbers, crunching the numbers. Um, but also you do a lot of interviewing, even when you're young. And that always surprises people. So even as a young person, I was 27, um, long hair, female, interviewing people who were very high up in companies um, when there were very few women in business, so that was interesting that I had to be able to be confident enough. And again, going back to my business school experience, that really helped me to be able to be confident enough to interview someone and ask them about what they did, what the issues were, and to be quick enough on the feet to spar with them and get data out of them. We often were trying to get people to give us data and they usually didn't want to give it to us because often, um, I know if I would be on the other side, if I were in a company and someone came and was interviewing me, I would be thinking, hmm, I wonder what they're gonna try to do to my position or my group. You know, you're, you're a little defensive. So you had to be good at um, speaking to people, persuading them again, 
persuading them to give you data and so forth. And that happens even when you're very young and very new. And the next step up from that is you become a manager. That's usually at two years. And then you're managing associates under you. And the manager is really the key person on any project because they're working on that project all the time. Whereas the partner has several different projects they're overseeing. Got it. And um, ultimately you become a senior manager, then you become a partner. But uh, the phrase at McKinsey is up or out. And what that meant is that you're always getting evaluated. So after every project, you were evaluated. It was a piece of paper, just a front and a back. Mm -hmm. Little things to tick off about, you know, your communication skills, both verbal and written, your analytical skills, your ability to work with clients, all those things were evaluated on each project. So by the end of the year, you'd have several of these evaluations. And then someone, some partner would be looking at all of them and meeting with you and advising you, you know, here, are, these are some things you do really well. Here's some things you need to improve on. And at the end of each year, but especially starting at year two, um, you always knew you could be up or out. So you could be going in there and they could be saying, you're wonderful, but we really don't think McKinsey's the best place for you to be. And we think you'd be better working in this sort of position in this kind of industry or something. The great thing about McKinsey is they always really help people. Anyone that they're counseling out, they give a lot of help to, often give recommendations of where they might be looking for a job. They give them time to look for a job. Um, so it was, it's amazing how loyal ex-McKinsey people are to McKinsey. And I think in part it's because of that. I have many, many friends who were counseled out who became CEOs themselves. So getting counseled out isn't bad. Sometimes the ability to be a really good analytical thinker and a client, person who serves clients, is a different kind of skill than someone who's a CEO. Because one frustrating thing about being a consultant is you don't get to make the decisions. So uh, that was something that frustrated me. We could say to a CEO, we've done all this analysis and we really think you should open a new plant in Boise, Idaho, and you should you know, develop a new strategy to serve customers in this way. But the company might not agree and they might not end up doing that. Many times they did, many times they didn't. So if you're the kind of person who really wants decisions to get made, which I sort of am, it was a little bit frustrating. Um, so a lot of these people who got counseled out ended up being CEOs who liked to make decisions and did a great job doing it. So that's kind of sort of interesting. So I did ultimately become a partner and um, I, <laughs> I think a lot of the women who came before me, just a few really, it was just difficult for them to be in an all-male environment. And for some reason, it never has been for me. Um, and a lot of my clients were really all-male environments, like forest product companies and engineering companies and fishing companies. There were no females. Um, but I, I wasn't uncomfortable with that. And I think that helped a lot, because if you felt like you were getting slighted a lot, um, you wouldn't be happy. And I sort of looked at it as a lot of my colleagues who were male also got slighted <laughs> because they were young, because they were junior for whatever reason. 
So I didn't really take it as because I was a female, even though it perhaps was. Um, but I let that slide off my back like water off a duck's back. So, so I did do well there and, you know, was elected a partner and that was really fantastic. And I think that it was probably something that helped me a lot in my career down the road. So when I was, you know, co-founding a tech company, I think that mattered a great deal to people that we raised money from. So it was um, like a badge of honor or something that was valuable. But the training at McKinsey was also superb, just like the training at business school, because McKinsey trains you every year. So you keep learning, keep learning, which of course, as you know, in these days, with so much technology around, being a continual learner is extremely important. And that's something they valued. Absolutely. Especially with how quickly it evolves, it's important to keep up to date and on the pulse of you know current technology and current business technology. <clears throat> I was actually going to ask, I know you went to, you led the, uh, you're one of the directors on the Harvard, um, like the research uh, group. I was wondering what, why you were interested in technology or business technology rather than any other um, business like agriculture, or why technology in particular you were interested in? Well, I've actually never met a business I wasn't interested in, to be honest. Okay. I thought agribusiness, like I did a tuna fishing study in Mexico, fascinating. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed everything I did. However, there are some special things about technology. So when I started the Business School Research Center out here to do cases on and research on Silicon Valley companies, that's probably the most interesting thing you can do. I used to tell people back then when I'd get interviewed by a newspaper or a magazine, it was like getting paid to eat chocolate. <laughs> so much fun because what our job was, was to find new startups and big tech companies, finding interesting issues they had, and then persuading them, again, we're going back to persuasion, persuading them to let us do a case study on them so that that could be used at Harvard. Harvard produces about 80% of the case studies that business schools use. So it's, they're not just used at Harvard, they're used all over the world. So that was another fun fun thing about it. So when you did a case study on a company, whether they were very tiny and had two people in them and they had just begun or whether they, it was like Intel, um, it was something that lots and lots of people were going to see. And you got to dive in there and get the data, find out what the issues were, interview lots of people, write it all together. But here's the interesting part. When you're at business school, you're taking a case that's messy and trying to figure out the answer. When you're writing a case, you're trying to write it so that you're not giving an answer away and you're not pointing in any direction. So that's difficult for people. Most people are taught to write logically, A, B, C, therefore D. When you're writing a business case, you wanna just present things, but without leading the student in one direction or the other. So that was sort of like unlearning the skill of presenting it logically. But it meant we could go anywhere. And if I met someone at a cocktail party and they were working on a really interesting new biotech startup, but they had an accounting issue, I could say, whoa, mm, we'd love to write a case about that, an accounting issue in a biotech startup. You know? So we were always out there marketing and it was really, really fun, really fun. It sounds it sounds awesome. It sounds fascinating. 
as someone who started a company, is there any tips or tricks you would give to other people who are looking to start a startup or a small business? Well, yes, there's so many. Um, one is that it really helps to have a balanced team. So even on day one, it really helps that let's say you are an extrovert and a people person and probably really good at talking to people and persuading them and doing things like marketing. Then it's really good to team up with someone who's probably more of an inside person. Maybe they like managing things. Maybe they really are interested in the technical side. They may even be introverted. If you have just one or the other, it's much harder to raise money or to be successful. So, I did a study once on startups and which ones, you know, tended to be more successful, which had been more successful in the long run. And one of the things we found was that, that balanced team. And a lot of people don't focus on the balanced team because they aren't willing to see the uh, strength in a team and they're not willing to really open up about their own shortcomings. So it really helps to be able to say, I am excellent at these things, but I really suck at these other things. And so I do need someone to help balance me to make this thing really go. So that's super important. Another thing is that CEOs of startups often get totally overwhelmed because it is overwhelming. It's an incredible responsibility and you begin to feel very, um, anxious about keeping it going for the sake, not only of yourself, but now your employees, even if it's 10 people, now that's their living that they're making from you. So there's a lot of heaviness there. And a lot of times CEOs try to get and stay involved in everything, even little things, you know, maybe um, scheduling their own travel or whatever. So having someone come in to help the CEO or the top two people to do things like that that are easily given to someone who's making less money to say, can you help us organize, do all the travel, do all of this, help with the accounting is really worthwhile. And most CEOs early on say, oh, I can't do it. I can't afford to spend the money on it. But what they find is if they do that, then they multiply their own effectiveness by two or three, because now they're not working on things that are unimportant. Now they're only working on things that are important. So that's very, very important to do. Also, I found somebody, some venture capitalist did a study years ago, I think back when we started our company, and they had found that people think in different time frames. So the average person thinks in the time frame of about a month or a couple months. Um, then there are people who think in terms of six months to one year. But successful CEOs actually can think in five years, and most people can't do that. So the CEO of the tech company that I co-founded, he could think in five years. And it was amazing to see, because he could think ahead as to what was going to happen. He could describe that. And for example, he knew early on that PCs were going to become ubiquitous and that everyone would have one in business. And I remember when we were talking to venture capitalists about this, and most of them thought we were crazy. But a few of them, well, this was a long time ago, and a few of them listened and got it. And those are the ones who did invest. But he was right about that. 
And that ability to think ahead and see the consequences of what you do today, five years down the road, is super helpful. So again, if you're trying to start a company and you're not the five-year guy, it also helps to find a five-year guy. And there aren't that many of them, but um, super useful people to find. And last thing, of course, is you want to find, uh, you want to do some market research. You don't want to just dream something up and never have asked people whether they care about this thing, whether it's a product for business or a product for consumers. You want to do some research. So with our company, we had talked to lots of people about it. Um, mostly it was electric utilities and banks and you know if you could do this would you buy this product that's really useful and you want to see what people want in the product what they don't what they're willing to pay that sort of thing so all those things are are very important absolutely and that kind of leads into my my next and i i think final question about what people want and market research and such i think there's um, a culture like a hustle culture or you know do your best or work hard where do you think the line between a CEO saying, I'm not working hard enough, I'm not putting in the hours, that's why my company's failing, or it's simply just not being the right time or the right idea between the company's doing bad or I as a CEO, I'm not doing well enough to keep the company going. Where, where do you find that line? Well, usually CEOs don't realize that it's because the product is wrong. They just usually don't. They become very invested in their product. Absolutely. They, the smart ones see that, you know, if they have a high-end product and it costs 5,000, that now building one for 1,000 is not stupid. It's smart. A lot of people will say, well, it's going to cannibalize. That's the term people use. It'll cannibalize your $5,000 one and no one will buy the 5,000 anymore. That might be true. But if you don't invent the 1,000, somebody else will and you'll be completely out of business. So many CEOs don't want to see this. They're wedded to that original product and they don't want to see that times are changing or we better change this or we better change that. And they usually don't blame themselves either, I have to say. Um, usually they're, they're uh, blaming maybe somebody who works for them or whatever. Um, so the, the real key is to be humble and keeping your mind open and always realizing that somebody is always on your tail. So it's like uh, Intel is like that. They're always saying we have to be the ones to develop the next chip because otherwise somebody else is going to do that. And you have to be paranoid. That's their word. And it's a useful word to think about when you're the CEO of a company, especially a tech company. If you're the CEO of a food company, things change, but not like that. And uh, But with a tech company, there's always a new technology coming and you want to be the ones to get there first. And real quick, do you think it's important for a company or a CEO to stay emotionally detached from the products they're making? Well, uh, that's a yes and a no. You definitely want to believe in your product. You want to be the biggest champion for the product that you have. On the other hand, if you can't be objective about how it stacks up to everything else, then you won't be a good CEO. So it's a it's a, a combination, but again, too, in a company, you really, what you want to do, if you were the CEO, you want to have somebody in your company, a technologist who probably is only objective. And then maybe your marketing person is a totally rah-rah. 
and you've got people who can argue it out down below you, you as the CEO are really making that decision. But you need to believe in your product, but you should always be thinking, how am I gonna make this better? Because nothing ever is perfect, as we know, right? Absolutely. Um, I appreciate all your time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Do you have any maybe closing remarks? This is a great area to live in. It's a great business to be in, technology. Um, so I encourage anybody who's interested in technology to get involved, to learn something about it. And the more you learn, the more fun it is and the, more, and the deeper you can get. So the more you learn, the more experience you get. If you're interested, for example, in starting a business, that only gets you closer and closer. Um, it's difficult to do when you're in your 20s, but once you've got that base, you can start thinking about, okay, how could I do something differently? And it's always fun to take on that challenge.